I love that last hymn we just sang. And there's a, it, it reminds me of a verse at the very end of the Gospel of John. And John says, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Wouldn't it be neat one day when we're in eternity and, and we find out what all those things were? I think it'll take an eternity to find those things out. Amen? Amen. You may be seated. If you have a Bible with you, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. As Jason mentioned this morning, we're going to be finishing the series that we've been calling Dear Timothy, as uh, Paul has written to young Timothy and encouraging this church that's in Ephesus. So where do we go after this book? Well, I think we're going to do something a little bit different. Uh, the next four weeks, uh, we are going to dive into what I'm calling a theology of suffering. You think, oh, well, that didn't sound real exciting. I think it's one of those subjects that we don't talk about often enough as a church. And when you and I face suffering, and Jesus says we will face suffering, we don't always know what to do with that. How do we? I thought we were supposed to be happy and everything was supposed to be well when we have Jesus. And so I want to help us to think about that. And in particular, I want us to think about it because we live in a country uh, that's becoming increasingly polarized, uh, politicized, and ostracized if you are in a Christian uh, framework. And so I want to prepare us for... I don't, I don't have a magic ball. I can't see what's coming in the future. But I want to prepare us for what might be coming in the future as we suffer typical kinds of suffering and perhaps even more intense suffering as we think about uh, the coming years, uh, living here. So that's next week in a few weeks uh, later. So you'll be thinking about that. This morning I want to f- uh, finish up reading First Timothy. We're going to start in verse 17 and I want to read through verse 21. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Let's pray. God, thank you for these words. Thank you for this entire book. Thank you for preserving it in what we call the canon of Scripture so that we profit from what you wrote not only uh, to Timothy and to this church of Ephesus, but to the churches throughout the ages of which we are one of many uh, that have followed in in these same footsteps. And so I pray as we look now at these final words uh, that you wrote uh, to Timothy through Paul, I pray that you would encourage us, instruct us, convict us, comfort us. We need it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you are a dad here this morning, you probably remember what it was like to hold your first child. I, I kind of remember what that was like. There's a bit of a trepidation, like, is the head supposed to go here or here? Kind of, 
I, I was kind of nervous, you know, as I'm holding this baby. You don't want to push too tight, squishy. You don't want to hold it too loose and fall, right? I remember when my wife and I brought Abby home from the hospital and she had been in the NICU for a few days, so there were nurses caring for her while we were there. But when we got to bring her home, we were all bundled up and, and we laid her there on the couch. And I remember I looked at Greta and she looked at me and kind of like, what do we do now? <laughs> I guess just keep her alive. I, I don't know. I'm not sure exactly how this is going to work, but every every time we handled her, we handled her with care, right? Because she was a treasure to us. Each one of our children were a treasure to us. We're not like that with a plastic cup, are we? We can take a plastic cup and drink it and throw it in the trash, drop it on the ground, stomp on it. It doesn't really matter. Why? Because that's not really a treasure. It's something that, that's very cheap. It's something that's expendable. But with treasure, something that, that's precious to us, we, we protect it. We guard it. We, we're careful in how we manage that responsibility. And so as Paul is approaching now the end of this letter to Timothy, he's pointing out two different treasures that we've been given. Uh, earthly treasures and heavenly treasures, earthly treasures or spiritual treasures, if you want to look at them like that. Two different treasures, uh, and, and that's what we'll look at as we compare this morning. So the first one is, the first treasure that we should handle with care is earthly treasure. Look what he says here at the very beginning of verse 17. As for the rich in this present age... Now, if you were here with us last time when we were in this book of Timothy, you'll recall that the verses just prior to this section, Paul was talking about false teachers who were not rich but desired to be. They were the ones that thought godliness is a means of gain. And so they were preaching, trying to get gain out of their uh, pulpit. It was a perversion, uh, really, uh, of their pulpit. And, and Paul had come along and say, godliness with contentment is great gain. So now Paul is turning his attention from people who didn't have riches but wanted it to those who did have riches, those who were rich in this present age, those who had wealth inside of the church. And I am quite certain that the people in this church of Ephesus do exactly what you and I do when we begin thinking about the rich. We begin thinking about people other than us, don't we? I'm not rich. He's rich. She's rich. I'm not rich. We don't categorize ourselves as rich, do we? But let me ask you one question, and it will answer the question of whether or not you are rich. I think it's, it's very easy. Do you have more than you need? Do you have more than you need? If you do, you're rich. You're rich. You have more than most of the world's population. If you have adequate food on your table, if you have more than one pair of clothes that you wear on a regular basis, if you have a pillow that you rested your head on last night when you went to bed, then you are far wealthier than most of the world's population. I remember when I was in India a few years ago, and outside of the dormitory in which we were staying, we, we were maybe on floor four or five, I don't remember, and we could look down out of our bedroom window, and right down below us was a house. The house was probably the size of one of the classrooms around our building here. That was the entirety of the house. 
The sides of the house were metal, kind of rusty. The top of the house was metal, also rusty. And across the front door was not a door. It was, it was just a, a sheet. It was pretty thin. And every morning when I would get up, I would look out there and, and the, I assume it was the mom. The mom would open that curtain and, and she would come out and she had a little fire going and she would start preparing something for their meals. And this little boy, he was probably only maybe four or five years old. He would come out every morning and he had a stick and a metal ring. That was it. That's all I ever saw him come out. And he'd go out and he'd push the ring around. It was all dirt. And there's no grass. All dirt. And a little bit later, she'd come out and she'd be sweeping. Is a dirt floor. She'd be sweeping. I'm like, what are you sweeping? It's dirt. And you're just sweeping the dust out of the house. Right? Let's, fo- let's face it. You and I are rich. We, we have a lot. And maybe you're sitting there saying, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. After I pay the mortgage... After I pay my car payment, after I buy groceries, after I pay FPL, after I get the kids' supplies for school, there's nothing left in the bank. Well, that may be true, but let me also say that's a matter of priorities, right? It's a matter of priorities. Could you survive in a smaller house? I'm not saying it would be exactly enjoyable, but could you survive in a smaller house? Could you have purchased an older vehicle without all the bells and whistles? Could you set the AC on something other than 65 when you go to bed at night? Right? There's a lot of things we can do. We don't need them, but we kind of like them. But we could do with less if we had to. Let's face it. We're rich. Okay, so when we come to this text in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and he says, as for the rich in this present age, he is talking to you. He's talking to me, right? He is talking to us. There's none of us that can be excluded from this. We're all on the hook. Now, let me also say this, lest you get a a negative vibe uh, from this. Nowhere in this text, nor anywhere in all of the New Testament ever are riches in and of themselves condemned. Riches are not the problem. What's the problem? The problem is what you do with them, right? That's the issue. The motive for wanting them and what you do with them. Some people have a lot of money because they inherited a lot of money. Some people have a lot of money because God blessed them and they were successful in in their business ventures. Some people had some providential circumstance that brought a lot of money into their possessions. Just because a person has money doesn't make him evil. It's not a sin to be rich. It's a sin to misuse the riches that God has given you. Okay, so Paul's going to give some instructions. Not saying you're bad because you're rich. He's just saying, here's how you use those riches. That's the issue. So, what are the instructions, Paul, to us, uh, to the church in Ephesus? Well, there are a couple negatives that he gives, and then there are several positives. First, he says, verse 17, charge them not to be haughty. Charge them not to be haughty. Those who are wealthy uh, face a unique temptation to be haughty, to be arrogant, to be prideful, to be high-minded. What does that look like? Well, it could be explicit displays of pride. 
I mean, someone could just flat tell you, I'm rich. Uh, that didn't normally happen, but sometimes people can tell you. I was, I, I was around a guy a few years ago, uh, and every time I was, I only saw him two or three times a year. Every time I saw him, he told me how much money he made. Why? He wanted me to know how rich he was. Okay, that's, a, uh, that's not typical, but that could be a, a haughty spirit within a person. You could be flashing large wads of cash. You know, you don't carry anything less than 100 in your wallet. Those kinds of comments, right? Um, not typical. What's more typical? Haughtiness. Well, haughtiness can also look like only associating with people of like kind. I don't want to rub shoulders with poor people. Ugh. I don't want to get close to, to those kind of people. Haughtiness uh, can look like seeing your wealth as a direct translation of God's blessing on you and his withholding of it from someone else. See how much God loves me? He's given me so much money. Apparently, he doesn't like you as much. Right? In spite of whatever any TV preacher has ever told you, money does not translate into a direct blessing from God. Okay, uh, there are people who have nothing who are at the height of God's blessing. I've seen them. When I was in India, these people at the height of God's blessing had nothing. And there are other people who have absolutely everything they want, couldn't dream of anything else, and are in utter misery. So you, you, you can't equate those two uh, together, right? You can't equate material blessing with God. But that's often an an attitude of haughtiness that people with wealth have. There's also a sense, unique temptation among the wealthy uh, to use their money in such a way that they do nothing for themselves. Uh, One preacher said it like this, everyone in your little world is there to do things for you. You know the feeling. You don't clean your house. You don't mow your lawn. You don't wash your car. You don't even clean the windows at home. The more money you have, the less you do. And you begin to see the whole world as servants. And everybody in the whole world is to serve you. And you're on top of the pile. And you just dictate what everyone will do and dole out the bucks and buy their time. And if they don't do it the way you want, you talk to them like you were talking to an animal. This is the tendency of wealth. I think that's what Paul's getting at when he says, don't be haughty. Don't be high-minded. Don't be highfalutin, as we would say. Right? I think that's pretty hard-hitting, but Paul's trying to get us to avoid those things. He says, charge them not to be haughty. In the second negative, he says, charge them not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Now, many of you in this room... Uh, we're here in Florida during the recession, 2007, 2008. And you know exactly what that verse means. You don't set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches because you saw it all disappear in a, a short amount of time, right? Wealth is not certain. Riches are not certain. Jobs and income are not certain. Should we be thankful for those things? Well, absolutely. We should be thankful for them, but we don't set our hearts on them. Those things are fleeting. And by the way, I, there's probably nowhere in all the world that we need to hear this more because every politician out there will try to sell you and I'll get you more money. I'll get you a better job. 
I'll get the economy cranking if you vote for me, right? That, that's where m- many, many people set their certainty on all those things. Here's what Solomon said back in Proverbs 23. He said, do not toil to acquire wealth. Now remember, this was the richest man in all of history. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. Jesus said something similar about riches in in Matthew chapter 13. He says that when the gospel seed was distributed, it fell on different kinds of soil. And one of them it fell on was soil that was among the thorns. And he says, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world, get this, and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word. Prove it unfaithful. The deceitfulness of, of riches. Why are riches deceitful? Because they promise what they cannot deliver. They promise you happiness. They promise you security. And they cannot deliver on those things. They're deceitful. So instead of our placing our hope there, where should we place our hope? Well, look at the verse 17 again. He says, Don't set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on who? But on God. Our hope should be set on the giver, not the gift. The giver, not the gift. Who gave you the gift of the riches you have? God did. Well, wait a minute. I worked kind of hard for this. Well, okay, maybe. But who gave you the strength to work hard for those riches? God did. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, it says, Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. In Acts chapter 17, it says, God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. It all comes from God. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Everything you have, everything I have, came through the sovereign hands of God. He's the giver, right? And so we're, we're to set our hope on the giver, not on the gifts. This stuff can come and go on the giver, right? But the stuff that he's given to us, what are we supposed to do with it? Well, he says here in this verse, verse 17, he says, he provides us with everything to enjoy. It's his kindness toward us. It's his grace toward us that that he's given us these things to enjoy. Now, here's what happens, though. People take that verse and they, they turn it on its head and they say, see, God gave me all this wealth for me to enjoy. It's for me to use. It's to make me happy. That's why God gave all this to me. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Don't turn that verse into some hedonistic, self-centered kind of thing. What is the best way to enjoy the blessings that God has given to you? Well, Paul answers that in verse 18. He says, They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Notice the play on words. I, I like this. And look, 
Look how many times he uses the word rich. I like this. As for the rich in this present age, don't set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches. God richly provides us. See all those times? He says, you know what real riches are? Verse 18. Riches in good works. That's real riches. You want to know something? Your money won't follow you to heaven. But there is something that will follow you to heaven. Did you know that? Your money won't. Like Jason said, we can pile it in your coffin. We can pile it in uh, Pharaoh's temple, wherever. But there is something that will follow you to heaven. In Revelation 14, it says this. I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this. Blessed are the dead who lie in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says this spirit, that they may rest from their labors. Listen to this for their deeds follow them. Your deeds will follow you to heaven. What you've done in this life will follow you to heaven. And God will judge you on how you used your time, your resources, your talents, His gifts for His glory. In part, your deeds will come into play when you are rewarded or when there's lack thereof of reward in heaven, right? So God is telling us here in 1 Timothy that as wealthy people, we are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, to share with those people around us. Jesus tells this striking parable. I I like this. In Luke chapter 12, we call it the parable of the rich fool. Listen to this parable. Somebody comes to the crowd and says to Jesus, Teacher, Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Okay, so here you go. But Jesus said to them, Man, who made, who made me a judge and arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them this parable. The land of a rich man produced plentifully... And he thought to myself, how can I give this all away to the poor among me? Is that what he said? If you know the parable, you know that is not what he said. He had all this abundance. And so what did he say? What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones and there I will store all my grain and my goods and I will say to my soul, I love this, he talks to himself, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, fool, This very night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Jesus is saying, how can you be rich toward God? It's not a matter of hoarding. It's not a matter of keeping it all. It's not yours. How can you be rich toward God? By using your riches to benefit others. 
And by doing so, Jesus says, you're laying up treasures in heaven. Have you ever thought about that? What is treasures in heaven? If I do good to people, is there going to be this stockpile of gold? Is my mansion going to be a little bit bigger? Maybe I'll get a larger harp, a nicer cloud. What will I get? What are the treasures? William Hendrickson, commentator, says, here's what it means to lay up treasures in heaven. Here's what you can anticipate. Number one, You have a good conscience toward God. You did the things that were pleasing to Him. Number two, you are going to receive an enthusiastic reception by those who benefited. Do you know that? That comes out of Luke chapter 16. There are people there that are going to have benefited from the good works that you did. And then in a general sense, thirdly, you receive the entrance into all the joys and all the glories of heaven. Friend, this is not a stockpile of gold. This isn't for us. It's for others. It's for others. And when we get to heaven, we'll find out how God used all of that for His glory. Do you want to take hold of that which is truly life? Paul says here, spend your life on others. Spend your life on God. Spend your life on loving your neighbors. Jim Elliot, famous missionary, famous quote, said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. It is that paradox that is so striking. Giving away all of the possessions which this world considers to be the key to the good life is the gateway to finding that which is truly life. And that is living for the name of Jesus, for his glory and joy with him. Do you want to avoid the make-believe life that Hollywood throws at you every day? The life of plastic, the life of shallow pleasure? Then be extravagantly generous. That's how you live the good life. God has been working this in my heart for 45 years and he's still working on me, on this idea of being, being extravagantly generous. Let me ask you, does this describe you? Are you rich in good works? Are you generous? Are you ready to share? Some of you don't even contribute to the discipleship making ministries of this church, and that's a shame. Maybe you give other places. Where do you give? What do you do? How do you help your neighbor? What are you involved in that's good works and sharing the riches that God has given to you to bless other people? So, God has given us earthly treasure. We're called to handle that with care. There's another treasure that we handle with care, and that's found in verse 20. He says, Oh, Timothy, and I like this. You know, when Paul wrote his letters, typically he had somebody that transcribed. He would talk and there would be this script, this person that would kind of write it out. And at the end of the letter, he would grab the pen and he would write something personal. We don't know for sure, but I wonder if this is where he grabbed the pen and he started writing in his own handwriting. And he says to Timothy, Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. That's the treasure the spiritual treasure, the heavenly treasure. It's the deposit. The weight of this little phrase really smacked me upside the head this week, honestly, as, as, I, as I was studying this. What is the, the deposit? What is that? 
Well, it's the repository of truth. It, it's, it's the basis of our faith. It's the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That, it's, it's, it's everything that's been entrusted to you and I. It's our means of salvation. And we take that deposit and we entrust it to other people. Paul learned it from his grandmother and from his mother. And in 2 Timothy chapter 2, he tells Timothy, Timothy, now I want you to take this deposit and I want you to entrust it to other faithful men who will be able to pass it on to others and to others and to others. So you and I come along and we're 2,000 years into this passing along of the deposit. Paul said way back in the beginning of this book, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, with which I have been entrusted. That's the deposit in Titus chapter 1 and verse 3. Paul says, At the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted by the command of our Savior. And in Titus chapter 1 verse 9, Paul continues, An elder, a pastor, a leader, church leader, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Listen, as a pastor, as an elder as a a teacher in this church, I have been entrusted with a deposit of the gospel, which God has called me to preach and to teach, and to pass that on to the next person who will preach it and teach it and so on and so forth, right? I don't have the authority to change it. I don't have the authority to sideline it. I don't have any right to silence it. I preach it in its entirety. My charge is to preach the word of God. I've been entrusted with that. And and I don't know how you feel about that, but as a pastor, that is weighty. There's a responsibility there that I should never take lightly. Taking this deposit and passing it on. And Paul's final admonition to Timothy here is the very same one he started off with in this whole book when he said, don't teach a different doctrine. And now he comes along and he says, guard the deposit. Hold on to the faith that's been handed to you. And I don't want you to miss this. Paul is concerned here that Timothy give himself wholly, fully, completely to the truth and reject even a subtle inroad of error. He's saying here, look at verse 20, avoid it. Altogether, avoid that irreverent babble, avoid avoid those contradictions, avoid that which is called falsely called knowledge. There are people that will constantly come along today and sell you a string of pseudo-intellectual musings that attack the scripture. There will be people that will come along today, constantly come along today, and they have some new theory some new enlightenment, some new knowledge that, that they somehow got. Most of it, when it's examined against Scripture, has absolutely no basis if you're intellectually honest with the words of the Bible. And yet somehow people fall into it. And they swerve all over the place. And just like then, he says, they swerve from the faith. Here's what I don't want you to miss. It's false knowledge that Paul is concerned with. False knowledge. Paul isn't mad because it's knowledge. He's mad because it's 
false knowledge. And people will come along today and they will tell you, don't worry as much about what you believe, just worry about what you do. That's what's important. It's how you live that's important, not what you believe. Friends, I'm telling you, Paul here is saying that is absolutely untrue. You need to be concerned with what you believe. The issue at hand, he says, is what's being called knowledge when in fact it's false. And false knowledge will inevitably, eventually lead to false living. You can say you're a Christian all day long. You can say you follow Jesus all day long. You can say you're a lover of God all day long. But if your belief system does not align with the Jesus of the Bible, then you are following a Jesus of your own making, and that's called an idol. And idolaters don't go to heaven. Friend, it is important that we believe the right thing and then we live out of that right thing. Paul is so concerned about this. He comes back to it here at the end of this letter and he says to Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Guard it with your life because other lives depend on it. How do we do that? How is it possible to do that? Just by our own grim determination, I'm going to hold tight. Now Paul finishes this letter quite intentionally when he says, grace be with you. And that word you there, that's plural. Paul knows that Timothy is not going to be the only one that reads this letter. He's going to read it to the church and eventually it's going to be handed it down to you. That you there is plural. And he says, Paul knows this. You need the grace of God to accomplish this, right? We need the grace of God. We need the grace of God to convict us of sin. We need the grace of God to give us faith to believe in His Son. We need His grace for forgiveness. We need His grace to continue following in the footsteps of Jesus. Our entire experience of salvation from beginning to end is all about grace. And it's all for the glory of God. And so this morning... We're going to pray together, uh, and then we're going to celebrate the Lord's table. We're going to celebrate His grace. That He would send, it is His ultimate act of grace, that He would send His Son for us, that He would give His one and only life for you and I. If you are a believer this morning, if you are a Christ follower, you are welcome to participate uh, in communion with us this morning. Let me pray, uh, and then I'm going to ask the Uh, Folks, to come up in a a minute to help me serve communion. Let's pray. God, we do want to guard carefully and handle carefully the treasures that you've entrusted to us. And man, in 2019, South Central Florida, we're rich. We don't like to think about it like that, but when we compare it to the rest of the world, we're rich. We don't say that in a haughty way. We say that because to whom much is given, much is required. Father, help us to be rich in good deeds. Help us to be generous, to share with those in need. Help us to use the gifts that you've given to us. It's yours. Help us to steward that well. We don't own this. It's not ours. You can take it away in a heartbeat if you want. But for whatever time that you've given to us to steward steward your riches, help us to do good deeds. Those kinds of things that will follow us into heaven and that's where we want to store up our treasure and help us to guard and protect and handle with care 
our spiritual treasure, the deposit of faith, the the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that was handed to us. Help us to teach it accurately, to believe it accurately, to pass it along uh, to others accurately so that we pass the mantle on to others who will pass it on to others and we would see more lives come to know you because of how we handled your word, your message with care. Father, I pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.